way. You win some, you lose some. We, got, we almost got there. But this morning, we're going to take a, a, a look elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 15 and verses 12 to 23. And thinking about uh, the resurrection and uh, why the resurrection matters to us. Uh, is it something that, you know, does it really matter if it actually happened or that the apostles thought it might have happened, or that it's a metaphor for a kind of a new life in our own hearts. And uh, Paul unequivocally uh, lays significant weight upon the idea that the resurrection of Jesus was historical, and that it has uh, um, uh, significance in that way. That just as the creation was historical, just as the fall of man was historical, just as death takes place on a daily basis, just as those things are historical, so is the uh, uh, turning back of all of those things. So is the overturning of those things. It's not overturned metaphorically, it's overturned really and truly. And we participate in that, and we will participate in that in the future. Jesus has already started the thing uh, going, the ball rolling as it were, 2,000 years ago. That's what we celebrate on Resurrection Sunday. That's what Sunday is about, full stop, period. Uh, we move from, as, as it was in the Old Testament, to celebrating the, the Old Testament Sabbath on the Saturday, but the resurrection of Jesus was so monumental that the be believers began to meet on the first day of the week when Jesus overcame death and the grave. And you can see why that was. And uh, so Paul in this chapter is laying the foundation for the historical reality of the resurrection, that it happened to Jesus and that it was proven and that as we uh, look forward, we know that that is going to be a truth that will overtake this world as well. That all the graveyards, that the earth and the sea, says the Bible, will give up their dead. We may look at that and say, isn't that a little fanciful? Isn't that, in this modern scientific age, more than we can expect? Has, well, we ask ourselves, has it ever happened in the past? Have these things ever occurred in the past? And if they have occurred in the past, we can build a, an expectation about them happening in the future. And so we find incredible. I mean, Paul is going on at great lengths here about the resurrection. That the church lived and died in that truth. Not just that Jesus died. When Paul went to Greece, when he was preaching in Athens, on Mars Hill with the Epicureans and the Stoics and all the great philosophers there, he preached, it tells us, Jesus and the resurrection. It doesn't say he just preached the death of Jesus, he preached Jesus and the resurrection. It became the cornerstone of, uh, of their faith. And it's the cornerstone of our hope. Paul, uh, uh, he begins the chapter by laying down two 
pillars. We've got pillars here, don't we? And they're very important. You take a chainsaw and go like this, you would be making for the exits pretty quickly. Uh, you know, will the church survive? Uh, I don't want to stand around and find out. I want to get out. You take those... Paul bases his, uh, his uh, uh, preaching of the resurrection on these two things at the beginning of 1 Corinthians. I invite you to look at it. Verse 3, For I delivered to you of first importance. Is there any doubt that the resurrection is the cornerstone of our faith? Of first importance. What I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Underline that word, Scriptures. That He was buried, that He was raised on the third day. Here it comes again. In accordance with the Scriptures. And we already sang Psalm 16 about the fact that God would not let the Holy One see corruption in the, in the, world, in the, in the grave. Now David wrote that. And on that day of Pentecost, Peter says, you see over in that tomb over there, David's dead body is in it. His flesh corrupted. His bones are there. He did not rise from the dead. So the question then is asked, who is David talking about then when he says, you will not let your Holy One see decay? Peter says, before 5,000 people, David wasn't talking about himself. He was talking about the Messiah, whom God would raise on the third day. And this is what's happening. In other words, he died and rose again according to the Scriptures. On Friday here, Mark was preaching to us from Isaiah 53, which tells us about the suffering and death of the Messiah. And that... After he suffers, he will be raised from the dead. He will see his, the fruit of his sufferings. And God will give him a reward of everlasting life and a whole and peoples from all over the world. Now that is just the tip of the iceberg that speaks of the fact that Messiah will suffer and that he will die and rise again. So Paul says, Jesus died, he was buried, and he was raised again in accordance with the Scriptures, written hundreds of years before the event. In such exquisite detail that there is no possibility of saying this is simply a human document. It talks of the fact that he was crucified with criminals, that he had nails driven into his hands and his feet. Even from the Garden of Eden, it talks about the fact that his heel would be crushed. So many other details that we could go on that were fulfilled in the life of Jesus. Not a bone would be broken. Uh, they gave me uh, wine and vinegar to drink. Uh, they cast, they, they gambled over my clothing. All of these things. And we could go on and on. That were exquisitely fulfilled. That's one pillar. The other is the historical evidence. Then he appeared, verse 6, 
to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. The implication is you can go and talk to them. 500 people saw Jesus alive at one time. There are many, many more instances of the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. The, the fact that the tomb was empty. That is a signature slogan that we use at resurrection time. The empty tomb. Where did the body go? I ask you that. Did the Romans take the, take the body? For one thing, they would have no interest in taking the body. They didn't care about this dispute. They just cared that Pontius Pilate was looked after, that Caesar wouldn't hate. They didn't care. They had no interest in getting rid of the body. And if the Jews got rid of the body, all they would have to do is reproduce it to take it out to say, look, all your preaching about Jesus being raised from the dead is absolutely silly because here He is. Now, go back to your homes, get a life, and just start all over again. They couldn't produce a body. Did the disciples take them? We're told that a large, a, 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 a strong guard was put at the tomb that was ordered by the Jews that make, make the, the, the tomb secure. Even if the disciples could fight their way through it, they were in no mood to do so. They were full of shock and discouragement and depression. Even days later, they were saying, we thought he was going to be the one to deliver us. Even if they had the presence of mind to do that, which they did not. What value would be in their hiding the body and then going off and spending the rest of their life being beaten, tortured, stoned, and all the rest of it for something they knew was false. Oh yeah, we're going through it. We're preaching a risen Messiah. Someone who has conquered sin and death. And really, his body is in the closet somewhere. His body is buried in a tomb somewhere, that, in a secret location. That would be absolutely preposterous. But friends, that's just the beginning of the evidences. And so many people have taken it upon themselves to write, to go and attack the resurrection narratives, and ended up being converted. Frank Morrison, one of the most famous, who wrote a book called Who Moved the Stone? It's downstairs. Who moved the stone? He started off to disprove the resurrection and ended up saying that the weight of evidence for the resurrection of Jesus was overwhelming. There was no denying it. That is why the resurrection becomes the cornerstone of our faith. And without that, if we get that wrong, as Paul will describe here, everything falls apart. It's a house of cards. Disprove the resurrection and you disprove everything. Walk away from everything. If you disprove it, if it wasn't true, forget it. Go golfing. Don't be here. Don't be wasting your time in uncomfortable pews. Do something else. 
But if Jesus is risen from the dead, it then validates everything He said about Himself, everything He said about the Old Testament, everything He said about the past, present, and future. And it causes us then to drop to our knees and worship Him as our Lord and as our Savior. But some in the church were saying that yes, while we believe that Jesus did rise from the dead, there is no general resurrection. Paul said you can't separate the two. He said if there is no resurrection, you can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't have it both ways. You can't say that Jesus did rise from the dead, yes, but generally speaking, there is no resurrection. That it is manifest in some other way, a resurrection in our hearts, which, unfortunately, many churches, mainline liberal churches, will say is the case. Which is a denial of the historic Christian faith. Paul says, if there is no resurrection, then even Jesus himself is not raised. Because you've just laid down a principle that the dead do not come back to life. And if that is the case, then you must say the same about Jesus. And he, he says here, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not raised. Verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're wasting our time. We're whistling Dixie. We're just blowing hot air. And this faith you say you have is nothing but vanity. It's emptiness. It's wishful thinking. It has no basis in fact. Neither does our preaching. But our preaching comes with the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. And you receive it with the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. It's not in vain. Verse 15, we have even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. In other words, we're saying things about God that aren't true. Do you like people saying things about you that aren't true? You did this. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. No, I didn't. And you get upset. You get angry. If someone's misrepresenting your words, misrepresenting your motives or your actions, we get really upset. And it could be something so small. Because we don't like being misrepresented. And Paul is saying, look, if we say, as we're going around saying that God did it, God raised him from the dead, and if he didn't do it, we're saying something about God that's not true. Just as you would say, I'm telling, even if it's a good thing. Hopefully you don't take credit for things you've done, not done. Good things you've not done. Hopefully if somebody gives you credit for doing something, you didn't, you say, no, you know, it, was, it wasn't me. It was, it was that guy. Even, even for good things, we want to protest and say, I didn't do it. Paul is saying we are misrepresenting the God of truth 
if we claim that he raised Jesus from the dead, if all you people, you Corinthian people, are saying that there is no resurrection of the dead. Look at what Peter says. It becomes the, the very uh, uh, cornerstone of Peter's first sermon. Acts chapter 2, when Peter stands up, and, what is it that he says? God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. Acts 2.32 This Jesus, God raised up, of that we are all witnesses. Acts 4.33 With great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and, all, and great grace was upon them. Giving their testimony that God did it. You see, and, but the thing is, they wouldn't even have to say God did it. They could just simply say God said He would do it anyway. Go back and read your Old Testament. Go back and read the Psalms. Psalm 22, Psalm 110, Psalm 16, and on and on it goes. Isaiah 53. God said He would raise His Messiah up. And that through His name, repentance and salvation would be preached to people all over the place. The disciples didn't even have to bear witness that God did it and that God raised him from the dead because God was already saying it all over the place. He was saying that this servant who will be despised and rejected even by his own people will rise from the dead. He will not be allowed to see corruption in the grave. His body won't be there long enough to start to decay. On the third day, he will come out and he will rise again. That's the testimony we have, friends. And why is God going to such great lengths? Why is Paul just hammering away at this notion? Because salvation is life and death. It's heaven and hell. It's, it's, it's everything. It's everything. It's more than your career. It's more than your family. It's more than anything else. It's eternal life. And that's why we need a foundation. God is calling people all over the world to step out. And, you know, look at our prayer notes. Look, you, the persecuted church all over the world. People are being put into prison. People are suffering. People are, are, are going through awful things, disowned by their families. Losing their jobs. and On and on it goes. Why are they doing it? Because they know. They're persuaded. They're confident that this is the Word of God. That this is God's truth. And they're not willing to, to turn from it. They're willing to die for what they know. And God has given that confidence to them in the Word. Just as He did with the apostles. They were ready to go to the stake. They were ready to go to the cross. They were ready to be stoned. They were ready to suffer the loss of all worldly possessions because they knew. They were so just amazed. Do your worst, they'd say. You judge whether it's right to believe, to, to obey you or God. We're, we're going to obey God because He's given us abundant testimony in His Word that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is the Savior of the world. Do your worst. 
Throw at us whatever you like. We don't care. We've passed over the threshold. This old world is dead to us now. We're in it for one thing and one thing only. That's why God wants you to know with great certainty the truthfulness of these things. Because your soul is on the line. Jesus says, what does it profit a man? What does a man gain if he should get the whole world and lose his soul? Is your soul in jeopardy today? Is God not being gracious to you and giving you such evidence, such proof, such a solid foundation to say, let this world go. This world, I, I could be dead tomorrow. Who knows? I could be, everything I own could be just like Job come crumbling down without, a, without notice. He says, but... But Jesus is risen. Look at these words, verse 20. What wonderful words they are. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. So Easter did not happen in the minds of the disciples, in the hearts of the disciples. It wasn't wishful thinking. That was the last thing they expected. That was the last thing that they, they had hoped for. That the body of Jesus would come back. They were doubting all over the place. Doubting Thomas. The apostles when they were, they, they, they were in complete fear. No one walks away from a Roman crucifixion. He doesn't revive in the tomb. In the cool of the, of the, of the tomb. You don't walk away. An abundant testimony was given. The sword was driven into the side of Jesus and blood and water issued from his side. He was dead. He was as dead as dead could be. The disciples were expecting nothing. Even as I say, after all these, after days, the two on the road to Emmaus, they, they, they thought, we thought he was the one, but they were sad, they were broken hearted. Christ has been raised from the dead. Paul, again, going back to the chapter, verses 3 and uh, down to uh, uh, 8, Paul laying out the foundation that we have in terms of the Scripture and historical evidence and all, all the pieces that you put together. Forensic scientists, people who have studied legal cases. If you read... Uh, oh, I don't know if my, I can bring his name to my mind now. Um, he, not Lee Strobel. He's like Lee Strobel. Uh, oh, he's a forensic scientist. Lee Strobel was a journalist. He was an investigative journalist. And uh, he, he, in order to disprove his wife wrong, who had become a Christian, he, he, started, he himself became a Christian. Oh, his name was right in the tip of my tongue. Anyway... Uh, he, he was a forensic scientist. He spent decades in the Los Angeles Police Department going over cases, investigating cold cases that had, been, that had been put to rest for years and years. The case would come back. Maybe after 30 years, they began to reinvestigate the case. They open up the case. 
new evidence has come to light and so on. It's almost there. Uh, and, and then, but people like that would look at it and say, the evidence for Jesus' resurrection is incontrovertible. He is indeed risen. And he has given abundant proof to that. And because we are united to him, as he's called there the first fruits, we too will also physically, not kind of, not metaphorically, but really rise. So that all the graveyards you see all over, and all the bodies that have been lost in, in the sea and wherever, they will, the earth and the sea will give up their dead. And there will be a general, as the Bible says, a general resurrection of the living and the dead. That includes you and I. Has it already happened? It happened when Laz Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb. Lazarus, come out! And the dead man came out. When Jesus stopped a funeral in Nain, and he said, son, get up. And he get up and he gave his, the boy back to his mother. When he goes into a young girl's room in, a, in, in, in a Palestine, and he says, little girl, I say to you, arise. Give her something to eat. Has it already happened? Can we then dismiss this idea of the general resurrection and that we will be part of that? No. We should joyfully anticipate it. Right? Is that part of your experience this morning? Is that, are, are you in this mindset? Are you part of this glorious kingdom? How, says Paul, if, if the head of the body, which is Jesus, rises, will not the rest of the body rise? That's what Jesus is called in the Bible. He's called the head of the church. Not just the head in terms of the prime person, but He's actually the physical head. You don't see a, a disembodied head floating around. You see the body rising up. You see the body coming out. When the head rises, the body rises. We are the body of Christ. We too will rise. That's what Jesus was doing. Just as there was a physical death when Adam and Eve sinned against God, God says, in the day you eat thereof, you will die. They died spiritually. They eventually died physically. It was real. And we're surrounded with it all the time. Death is a present reality. In the lives of our families, in our communities, in Ukraine, Vietnam, Western Europe, all over the world, every country, death has been a reality. A historical reality. Jesus has not come to destroy the idea of death. He's come to destroy death itself. That's why He is called the last Adam. He's coming to undo what Adam did. That's how we have the proof that God has accepted His work by raising Him from the dead. That's how we know our sins have been forgiven, as Paul says in Romans. He was raised for our justification. So that I know He has accepted me in Him. In Christ He has accepted me. That's why it's so important for us this morning then, friends, to have faith in Jesus Christ. To trust in Him. To call Him Lord. 
Paul says here, for as by a man came death, by man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now, the Bible says that we are all in Adam by virtue of the fact that we're part of the human race. We're all there. We all die. We all sin. Those are family traits of being in our father Adam. But he says all who are in Christ shall live. Though everyone is in Adam, not everyone is in Christ. How are we in Christ? By faith. By believing the message that is preached. We're no longer considered to be in Adam. Under judgment. Part of the old world. We are now by faith in the risen one. Who has overcome death. Who has overcome sin. And who has ushered in the kingdom of God to which He now invites you and I to come. Is, can there be anything greater than that? Have you heard any news that's better than that? In this world? On the television? Has your workplace, has your job, has, have people around you promised you anything better than that? This is why Paul was willing to suffer as he did. And to give his life as he did. Because he knew it was true. But friends, it's not just Paul. It's the Scriptures backing it up. We have that wonderful confidence and assurance. So, we have laid out for us the importance of why it is important for us to believe in the resurrection. The cross and the empty tomb are two sides of the same coin. You take one away, forget it. You take the cross away, it doesn't matter what you say, our sins have not been atoned for. You take the empty tomb away, and we have not been justified. We have not received that confidence that God has accepted us. But in, in both, we trust. In both, we believe the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, giving to us a down payment as it were. You know what a down payment is. You go to buy a house, you put down payment on it, you put $10,000 on a house, say, that's secure, that's mine. I, I intend to take the whole shooting match. And the resurrection of Jesus is God's pledge to us that all who are in Him will rise as He did. will enjoy not only a resurrection in the heart, or simply go to heaven when we die, but that we, body and soul, will be redeemed. That's what Jesus came to do, you know. Not just to save your soul, but to save your body and soul. That's why He rose on the third day. Because the body matters. The physical body matters. That's who we are. We're not just a disembodied soul. We are flesh and blood. When God created man, He created him body, skin and bone with, a, with blood coursing through his veins. In a world of beauty, 
with skies and whales and fields and streams and all of that. That's all a part of what God created good. And Jesus has come to take that all back. And he does so by walking out of the tomb saying, death is dead. Sin is atoned for. I have ushered in now a new creation. And he invites every one of you, young and old, to hold up what God has and hold up what you are aspiring to in this life and say, Choose ye now this day whom you will serve. What think you now of Christ? Has God not left an indelible stamp upon His Word that is indisputable as to where we ought to stand? And that to reject so great a salvation is utter insanity. That's, you see, insanity is the opposite of reason, isn't it? A sound mind. That's why Paul reasoned from the Scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. It's reasonable this morning to believe that the Old Testament predicted Him. The New Testament shows that He is the fulfillment of that. And that now, the only recourse that we have is to say, as doubting Thomas, my Lord and my God. Let's pray together. Lord, as we close this morning, we thank you for the historical fact of Jesus' resurrection. Father, we thank you that you've given us so much evidence, so much proof, scripturally, in the Old Testament, and historically in the New Testament church that leaves no shadow of doubt as to where we ought to stand this morning. Please, Father, we pray, because we know that even after all our words have been spoken, unless You draw souls unto You, we cannot come. We're not able to come. And Lord, we pray that this morning, by Your Spirit, You would be drawing hearts unto You, causing them to turn away from the darkness of unbelief, to come to the light of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank You for the empty tomb. We thank You that He is risen indeed. And pray, O oh Father, that that truth would spill over into our lives, that we would live the resurrection life, that we would live a hope-filled life, knowing that no matter what befalls us in this world, whether it be poverty, sickness, or whatever, we have... Uh, uh, an eternal inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for us. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.